Well, as Alex just shared, our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of John chapter 2, starting with verse 1, the story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. You've likely heard the old Indian proverb about the blind men and the elephant, right? They, were, they had come across an elephant which they obviously had never seen before. One of the men reaches out and feels one of its large legs and says, oh, an elephant is like a tree. The second grabs the trunk and says, no, 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 an elephant is like a strong hose. The third grasps grasps its tail and says, an elephant is like a rope. The fourth plays with one of the ears and says, it's more like a fan. The fifth leans against the side and proclaims, an elephant is like a wall. The five then launch into a loud, irritating argument about who is right. About that time, the elephant gets tired of the bickering, rears up, and knocks them all to the ground. Walking away, he says, it just goes to show you that you can't trust first impressions. When I first saw these men, I didn't think they would be any fun at all. (laughs) Let's agree from the outset that anything, any story, any experience, any text can be interpreted in a number of different ways from a number of different perspectives. Any five people can look at the same event and draw five very different conclusions. We're all dependent on our own perspectives, our own standpoints. And when it comes to scripture, we all hear it differently. And too often, we hear only what we want to hear. Take, for instance, this passage from the Gospel of John. In some traditions, this is the text that's used to sanctify marriage. Roman Catholics believe that Jesus' attendance at the wedding in Cana sets marriage apart as one of the seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, and that 
is what's important about this story for them. Other people read this passage and say that because Jesus turned water into wine, it must be okay to drink or not. Some of you may remember that when Jimmy Carter was inaugurated in 1977, he announced that nothing stronger than wine would be served in the White House during his administration. The Southern Baptists had a fit. Billy Graham jumped to Carter's defense saying that even Jesus drank wine, citing this story from the Gospel of John. Well, that immediately got Billy Graham into hot water with the fundamentalists, so he had to issue another statement saying that wine of biblical times was much weaker than modern drink. <laughs> we, he continued, we have free conscience before the Lord, but it's better for Christians to be teetotalers except for medicinal purposes. You may not know this, but, the grape, ju but grape juice was first patented in the late 1800s by a Methodist prohibitionist named Thomas Bramwell Welch. Unfermented grape juice was his way of, as he put it, offering the church the fruit of the vine instead of the cup of the devil. Today, Welch's sells hundreds of millions of dollars of grape juice every year. A large segment of that is Protestant churches buying communion supplies. The Mormon church is so zealously opposed to alcohol that they only use water for communion to avoid even the slightest risk of fermentation. But the Anglicans and the Catholics are equally opinionated just in the other direction. Vatican law mandates that the wine used during mass must be natural, meaning it has to be fermented. A Muslim website that I saw recently says that Jesus, whom the Muslims consider a prophet, would have, con would have converted water into grape juice because God forbids alcoholic drink. These Muslims find it inconceivable that Jesus would have produced a beverage that they blame for what they call social and moral bankruptcy. Others insist that Jesus never drank wine at all. He drank beer, they say. Wine was the drink of the wealthy and the elite of that era, while beer was the preferred drink of the common people. Therefore, Jesus had to have drank beer. If this all sounds like theological dancing around the head of a pin, I couldn't agree more. People read this story in thousands of different ways, but I want to suggest this morning that I think this story is not about marriage. This story is not about drinking. I think this passage is about something different altogether. On the third day, that's how the story begins. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. On the third day. We're reading this story backwards, remember, earlier into history. So we ought to think that sounds familiar. We know something else that happens on the third day. Resurrection happens on the third day. New life happens on the third day. It isn't just coincidence that John uses these words. He's setting the stage. It's the third day. Something is about to happen. We all know the story. The wine runs out and Jesus' mother comes to him hoping that he can do something about it. 
There's this testy little exchange between the two of them, but then his mother tells the servants to listen to her boy and do whatever he says. So he instructs them to fill six stone jars with water. And then when they pour it out, it's taken to the chief steward who proclaims it the finest wine and praises the bridegroom for saving the best for last. Here are a few things that you need to know behind this text. In the ancient world, a wedding did not involve a few hours on a Saturday afternoon. The wedding feast would likely have lasted a week, and the wine would have been flowing freely. It was a huge community event, a real celebration with really high expectations of hospitality. The reputations of the parents and of the bridegroom were at stake. Running out of wine didn't just mean the guests would finish up their cake and slip out early. Running out of wine meant that the party had to come to a grinding halt. Running out of wine was a disaster. So by producing more wine, in essence, what Jesus is doing is keeping the party going. He keeps things happening. He's keeping all the people together. You also need to know that these six jars weren't just empty buckets lying around. John makes sure that we understand that these stone jars are for the Jewish ritual of purification. This comes straight from the Torah, from the laws of ritual purity. Leviticus says, lays out clear instructions for what it means to be ritually clean and what you can touch and what you can't touch and what you have to do to be made clean if you touch something that you're not supposed to. And this is very important. According to Leviticus, if you're not clean, you're not welcome to be a part of the community. You're cast out. You're unwanted. You're uninvited. The purification ritual then is all about who's in and who's out. So it's no accident that Jesus uses these jars to turn water into wine. The old rule said that these jars, this ritual, was what decided whether you were in or out. These new rules, Jesus' rules, say that what matters is not keeping people out, but drawing people in, opening up the community to include everyone. According to the Talmud, which are the writings of the Jewish rabbis, the ritual of purification required only about a cup of water to purify about a hundred men. Jesus has well over a hundred gallons of water. In other words, more than enough to purify the entire world. Do you see what's going on here? There's enough for everyone, enough for the whole world. The water that's used to keep people out becomes new wine to draw people in. As I said earlier, everyone's going to hear this story differently, but I think there's a word here for all of us. And I think it's a word about community. This week, I read an article about the effects of the pandemic and what they're having on each one of us socially, especially on children. It referenced a study that was published about 15 years ago called Social Isolation in America, which itself was a comparison against a similar study done all the way back in 1985, basically about how many confidants people have in their lives. 
If you're familiar, familiar with Robert Putnam and his book, Bowling Alone, this is that work. What the researchers found is that over the past 40 plus years, we have increasingly become more and more isolated from one another. 50% of people in the study said they discuss important matters in their life with no one or with only one other person. Only 15% say they have four to five conversation partners in their lives. And the last two and a half years have only accelerated this trend exponentially. Some argue that this is all misleading because we, now have, we are now emailing and tweeting and posting on Instagram and texting more and more. But the study suggests that all technology has done is give us a wider, less connected group of people in our lives. A person may have 2,000 friends on Facebook, but no one to confide in. Albert Borgman, who teaches philosophy of technology at the University of Montana, says essentially that technology has made us lazy. We don't have to work very hard anymore. The antidote for that, he says, is to set our sights on what he calls higher thresholds, tasks that demand something of us, tasks that ask for our best effort. One of the highest of these thresholds, he claims, is to prepare and to sit down and eat dinner with friends and family more nights out of the week than not. It doesn't matter what it is. It's not the food. It's the habit that surrounds it. Cooking, serving, eating, sharing, laughing, talking. I imagine that's probably a stretch for most of us. It's a whole lot easier to eat takeout on the couch while watching Netflix on our phone. But Borgman asks, as Christians, aren't we supposed to be about calling people to the table, to fellowship and friendship and relationship? That's what I think Jesus is doing here at the wedding bank banquet in Cana. He's calling people together. He's creating space for friendship and fellowship. He's inviting them to the party. I read a story recently about a missionary coming home from India near the end of World War II. His church board told him that it was time for him to take a furlough, and they wired him money for his trip home. But when he got to the port city, the missionary discovered a boatload with Jewish refugees who'd been all over the world looking for land, someplace to land and to live temporarily. These were the days when European Jews were sailing literally around the world looking for a place that would let them stay and live, and these particular Jews were now staying in attics and warehouse and basements all over this city. Well, it happened to be Christmas, and on Christmas morning, this missionary went to one of the houses with dozens of fa Jewish families and where they were staying. He walked in and said, Merry Christmas. They looked at him like he was crazy. We're Jewish, they said. I know that, the missionary said, but what would, what would you like for Christmas? They were stunned, but said, well, we'd like pastries, good pastries, like the ones that we used to have back in Germany. So the missionary went out and used the money for his ticket home to buy pastries for all the Jewish refugees he could find. 
Of course, then, he had to write home asking for more money to book his passage back to the States. As you might expect, his superiors were waiting for him when he arrived and wanted to know what exactly happened to the money they sent him originally. He told them that he'd used it to buy Christmas pastries for Jewish families. His superiors were indignant. Why did you do that? They don't even believe in Jesus. The missionary simply replied, yeah, but I do. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet. In the Old Testament, whenever you see an abundance of good food and good wine, it's a sign, an eschatological sign, an indication that God's new world is breaking through. Good food, good wine, new life, and lots of it. And there's plenty to go around. Amen.